everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zauk, and today I have on the wonderful Ken Gwen, co-founder and CEO of Republic. Ken is a Silicon Valley native, but not the kind you're thinking of as he grew up on the other side of the tracks, as he says. Growing up in a poor immigrant family in Palo Alto, Ken witnessed the amazing wealth creation opportunities around him that the founders, angel investors, and VCs achieved, but noticed his family would never have a way in. After a traditional career in law and finance, Ken became general counsel at AngelList to begin democratizing access to private investing. In 2016, Ken went out on his own and co-founded Republic, a platform empowering everyone to invest in the future that they believe in by providing access to startups, real estate, crypto, video games, and more. Republic has facilitated over 300 million in investments from over 1 million global community members. Ken has an amazing story and his passion shines in today's episode as we cover his long journey from immigrant family to startup founder, how Republic works and its great mission, the upcoming disruption of venture capital, their onboarding of Gumroad and Backstage Capital, how he thinks about due diligence, value-aligned investing, and a fun rapid-fire round, including a hilarious first job, his thoughts on Naval Ravikant, the best Vietnamese in the Bay, and much more. Let's get started. Hi, Ken, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It is great to have you on in the wake of some amazing, amazing milestones for Republic. And we're not too far off from Wharton Fintech's Clubhouse session, where you came on along with the founders of iCapital and Forge. It is just great to have you back on the Wharton Fintech platform. Thank you so much for having me, Ryan. Truly an honor uh, to be on the podcast with you. Great. So I want to start by taking our listeners back to, you know, a younger Kendrick growing up in the Bay Area in the 90s. The story goes that, you know, you had seen young programmers around you making millions throughout the tech boom, of course, being located there during that time. You know, while you and most folks in America were just left on the sidelines, can you walk us through your background? And although you didn't start Republic right away, how this childhood experience shaped your career and perspective? Absolutely, Ryan. So my family and I immigrated from Vietnam to the Bay Area, specifically East Palo Alto. Now, East Palo Alto is a very wealthy city, thanks to Cisco and all of the technology companies and their employees. But back then, I think it was among the most unsafe cities in California or probably all of America. And Highway 101, which runs right through between East Palo Alto and Palo Alto, was like that proverbial train track that across the highway was obviously Stanford and University Ave and the Stony Houses and home to many startups. And on the other side is, you know, working class decidedly. And not only that, we as immigrants, you know, we're not accredited, we're not millionaires, but we're like right there in, in that proximity. And the headline news on the San Francisco Chronicle and the San Jose Mercury News is like bombarded day to day. You know, you see billboard ads and whatnot. I'm sure I wasn't the only one, but certainly it was like, hey, mom, dad, you know, what about eBay? Uh, and then later on, like Google, should we invest in early? And they were kind of like jokingly saying that like, hey, you know, that's really for the rich. But as it turned out, even parents of my friends who were accredited, who lived in, you know, Palo Alto and Cupertino, 
doctors and lawyers also did not have any access. It's really a rarefied circle that is venture capital. But I think that notion of just wanting to be part of the narrative, part of the story, and the story here then and now was technology and innovation. It really spoke to me and couldn't do that and kind of wanted to see that, you know, like my siblings and others who want to be a part of something that they believe in, would have the power to do so. And that's how, you know, over 12, 13 years later, ended up launching Republic. But you mentioned uh, that I had a prior career before tech. And, you know, the definition of success for most immigrants uh, are stability and a profession that they can describe to their friends about their kids that don't need any explanation, right? So what an entrepreneur, a founder, those terms did not meet my parents' definition of success. Uh, So ended up, you know, pursuing a law degree and practice law at Goodwin Proctor, which is a large international law firm. And I loved it, but it wasn't for me in the long run and had the opportunity to go into asset management and worked at a very large fund of funds and even went back into a stint in academia in Palo Alto on the other side of the track. But and then ultimately went into uh, into startup uh, at AngelList and then founding Republic. Fantastic. So two quick follow ups. First one, this stint at Stanford, it also took you back to Vietnam. How did you put this together and what was the impetus to, you know, returning to your family's home country to help teach? It's a really good question and a difficult one. And I think that at least for me, the one North Star that guided my professional career had always been Am I finding what I'm doing now meaningful? Is it a profound experience? And the moment that it stops being so, then whatever opportunities are available, take that, right? So I was at a law firm and after two, three years, I knew that like the learning curve like plateaued out. And so went in-house to a hedge fund, a fund of funds, and through the financial crisis, which is a great learning experience, that also plateaued out. And just by a stroke of luck that there was a full-time teaching fellow position at Stanford that I probably was not qualified for. You know, I'm an okay attorney, but certainly not like uh, teaching uh, material at, at one of the top law schools in the country. But the opportunity opened itself. And I think I took a 90 plus percent pay cut to come back for two years because I think that it would be a unique and profound experience compared to anything else that was on the table at the time. And it's a experience that money could not buy and could not buy later on. So that's how I ended up going back into academia. But again, after two years, I love teaching. I'm a terrible academic writer. So writing law review articles for 400 pages, I was not enjoying it. And I was bad at it. And uh, again, another opportunity came up that I got connected, introduced to Maurice Canbar, the founder of Sky Vodka. And I think through him that I first learned entrepreneurship and what it meant to run, operate and build businesses. That's great. And then, of course, the stint as general counsel at AngelList. We will get to Naval and your stint there probably later in the episode. So I want to get to Republic. You eventually decided to, you know, take the entrepreneurial plunge and start this platform. So can you lay out for our listeners what Republic is and, you know, what problem it's trying to solve? 
A Republic is the leading or a leading investment platform that empowers people anywhere, everywhere of any net worth to invest in what they believe in and what they want to see in the future. If it's real estate, we make that available. If it's startups or SpaceX, if you like crypto assets or video games. So these are the actual verticals that currently are available on Republic. Whether you come to the platform with $20 or $2 million, the notion here is that everyone should have ownership, if they so choose, in things that they passionately believe in. And providing that range of options, and even though we're still early, uh, we're the only multi-asset private investment platform, as far as I know, in the U.S., if not in the world, and uh, currently with over a million members. But hopefully this is just the very beginning. Absolutely. One million members is incredible growth. So you obviously have, you know, if you have one million users, they are all very different types of people, some accredited, non-accredited. Are there any sort of tiered offerings? Do accredited investors have certain access to some funds um, and then non-accredited to other? Certainly. And Ryan, if I may answer one question that you just asked just now, what purpose, what mission does Republic serve? And it relates to the second question that you asked just now. The mission here, two different tiers, one of which was really in a way fulfilling that desire uh, that I had as a teenager and then as a lawyer wanting to invest again, in things that I very much believed in, startups and innovations. And now that extends to real estate and crypto assets. So that sense of fairness, of access was the driving force. And I think it's a needed thing. But going beyond that, it is very clear that the wealthiest 1% built their wealth through investment in the private markets rather than a few do uh, successfully do that in the public markets. But the vast majority of people build their wealth, uh, phenomenal wealth, through investing early and privately and be able to participate in that upside when a company or a business goes from private all the way to public that is having gone foul an IPO. So the ability to provide and enable people to invest privately makes sense well beyond the fairness and access component. But I really think that it's going to basically enable people to gain and participate and have the level of prosperity that we have not have seen in the past 100 or 200 years. Now, because everyone has very different risk profile and very different disposable or investable assets, you have to present different products and different asset classes to appeal to different investing public. Let's say a retired doctor with a $5 million investment portfolio that currently is just in mutual fund, or a college student wanting to invest 50 bucks that he did not spend at the bar the Friday before, probably are looking at very different things, right? And so we curate or start to curate and present them in a way that is relatable, similar to how Amazon presents a suite of products across many criterias and categories, but no one has any confusion navigating it. Republic is working on that. And obviously we hope to down the road provide that menu of investable assets to the general public. 
Yeah, it's such an amazing experience. I love that contrasting example of the doctor and the college student really helps, you know, bring it to life. So Ken, I think a lot of our listeners, and when I very first heard about the platform as well, I said, hey, you know, this sounds like some really well-known companies from a decade ago, Indiegogo, Kickstarter, GoFundMe, all of those names, AngelList, and more. So how does Republic differ from these companies? You listed some of the most well-known, quote-unquote, crowdfunding platforms, but crowdfunding is a very broad term. So GoFundMe, Indiegogo, and Kickstarter are donation-based crowdfunding or selling a product or pre-product crowdfunding. So the notion of making a donation and making it widely accessible or selling a product, everyone has purchased product for, you know, the existing of humanity, trading product. Very, very few people today have ever invested privately. In fact, people don't even know what that means. You know, my oldest siblings, I'm the last one of five, and they're either doctors or engineers. And a save, a convertible note, pretty much you know, is that a dessert? Is that a foreign language? And they're not alone. They're way smarter than I am. But that's how the world is in the wealthiest country, you know, in the globe. No one knows what private investing means. And so the business model of Republic is much harder. You got to educate and warm people up to something before you can expect them to actually take action and do it. But the value behind that the marketing value, for example, if you drink socially and you invest $100 in absolute vodka, you're going to go and buy your friends absolute vodka and serve them at, you know, whatever holidays or parties that you go to. If you just buy a bottle of absolute, the next day you may buy a bottle of Sky Vodka. If you invest 50 bucks in absolute, that's all you're going to buy for probably many years to come. So the alignment, the psychological attachment and how people feel being a part of something is such a unique value proposition that I really hope that over time, most people in the world get to experience when it comes to things that they really believe in. Yeah, Ken, I completely agree. And, you know, I talked a lot with Michael Sidgmore of Broadhaven Ventures, who has invested in Republic, about this concept on another episode. You know, the ability for a company to galvanize dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of not only product fans, but owners is just amazing value creation. The alcohol example, I think, is a classic one. You know, if I even have a $100 investment in Sky Vodka, I'll be ordering Sky and making sure my friends do for the rest of my life. And if it's a more nascent product, I think it's just so powerful. You know, a couple of classmates of mine actually started a pulque drink called Shoma. It's in the tequila and mezcal kind of family of drinks. And, you know, if I were invested, I'd be telling every bar I walk into, hey, you should check out or stock this drink. I think over the next few years, it would just be reckless you know, for consumer-facing companies especially, and of course a lot of other companies, to not list on a platform like Republic. You're just getting these permanent product evangelists. So it brings me to this next question. You know, private assets, such an exciting space, you know, and we've covered that so far, but the reason they're not allowed, you know, to everyday people is that they're opaque, illiquid, and risky. 
for everyday people. You know, your siblings are engineers and doctors and don't know the first thing about a convertible note. And, you know, I come from a family of physicians as well and similar level of investing knowledge. So how are you thinking about diligence and onboarding companies? I'm sure you feel this weight each day as people are, you know, trusting your platform to put their hard-earned money in. When it comes to due diligence or the vetting process, here's a stat. In 2020, uh, over 8,000 companies applied to launch and raise on Republic. We accepted and launched just shy of 200. Now, that said, that doesn't mean that there weren't very credible companies that we rejected because we didn't think that they would be successful in Republic. And it doesn't mean that there weren't a ton of companies that didn't fit the traditional lens of what is a credible early stage business. But the whole point of the wisdom of the crowd is that Republic would serve the purpose of curating but we want to keep an open mind because what we're doing is supposed to change the status quo of venture capital. And, you know, venture capital, for some, it seems like it's been around for a long time. But five decades is like a split second in the history of humanity, right? So it's obviously still very early on. This is still just phase two of what is very new. So the traditional lens of what is a credible venture deal obviously by no means is an objective or fixed in stone lens. And so we do in the early phase test different hypotheses and models. But one thing that we want to purposely push and make it available on the platform are deals that already have a community of people who believe in it. And I think that's where, let's say to give you an example, a VC would never invest in a company, let's say founded by you and a colleague at Wharton, which is among the most credible of founders in terms of background. But if you guys are building, let's call it a local business model that you only hire formerly incarcerated uh, employees locally in Philadelphia and New York, and the business can be profitable and do well, but the market is, you know, 20 or 50 millions, meaning if you do super well, your business model is worth 20 or 50 millions. Even if you're extremely profitable, you will not receive any venture financing because the business model is not large enough. A VC would only invest in a company when the company has the potential of returning 100x. So when it comes to the crowd, we want to make sure that we provide a wide range of businesses that people can relate to and can back for reasons that may not be a 100x return, but a 2x return. Uh, so that's where Republic deals differ from the traditional venture curative lens. Great. So, I mean, we've done a great job laying out Republic. I'm sure some of our listeners will look to get involved after this episode. So first, we'll take it from the business side. If you're a business looking to get listed on Republic, just very quickly, what does the application process look like and what does Republic charge to get listed onto the platform? Uh, well, Ryan, uh, Republic has three synergistic business lines. One's uh, fundraising for companies that want to raise from the general public. We call it retail investing. 
The second vertical are companies that want to raise from institutional. For example, we deploy a few million dollars into SpaceX. They're pretty much Republic was the only platform where someone could, if he had $200,000, invest in SpaceX last year. And the third line is the blockchain division. So the retail arm, for someone to apply, they got to go through a filing, a regulatory filing process and a financial disclosure process. But in short, it takes about a month and about $10,000 to launch a retail campaign on Republic. For the right companies, we can do private financing quicker and cheaper at larger amount. And for the blockchain division, even a smaller subset can raise even more money if they so choose to raise on the private capital side. But I think the focus and the mission of what we do is on the retail side. And that side is far simpler than people think. Uh, Again, about three to four weeks and less than $10,000 to do all of the legwork and launch a campaign on Republic. So Kendrick, I do want to highlight a few companies that I think all of our listeners will be familiar with. Of course, the first one is SpaceX, which was listed on Republic. That needs no introduction. The second one, Pipe, led by Harry Hurst, who was just on the Wharton FinTech podcast and is leading one, I think, the fastest growing FinTech of all time. Just incredible company. And then the third one is Dapper Labs, which powered NBA Top Shot has been involved in quite a few projects. So can you just talk about, you know, how investors were able to get access to these incredible companies and, you know, what the outcomes were and the process for these types of companies at this stage? The more mature companies like Pipe or SpaceX, Carter, Robinhood, and Dapper Labs raised from the Republic's private accredited only investor base. That's why you can't just randomly see it by going on on our platform until the deal is done. But if you're an accredited investor, you would be able to see it. Now, because the requirement to raise from the retail public involves disclosure of things like revenue and your financial statement publicly, the more mature companies like SpaceX typically are not ready to do that. It takes too much of their bandwidth and therefore they raise privately. Yes, uh, I think Dapper Labs, that investment yielded our investor, I think 11,000% return in less than a year. (laughs) And Dapper obviously also created CryptoKitties, the first wave of NFTs, and uh, in some way responsible for the trend that we're seeing now. Relativity Space is another company that yielded over 6x return. Again, unrealized, but just markup within a year and a half, right? These are phenomenal ROIs compared to anything in the public markets, but it still comes with a high degree, high risk of loss. My first private investment was in a company, a value at the time at $3 billion, and it still became a big fat zero. So people got to understand this is high risk. (laughs) Well, Quibi, right, also raised $1.5 billion and folded. So private companies come with a high degree of risk, but it doesn't come with the market manipulation that you see with GameStop. Uh, So there are pros and cons. Um, Yeah. Absolutely. And then one more company I want to discuss, because this was made available to all people, is Gumroad, a very popular company, one of the highest profile startups, has quite an interesting history. Can you talk about the nature of how you got Gumroad on on the uh, platform? I think it was $5 million raised. 
So there was a change in retail crowdfunding laws about two weeks ago. It used to be that no company could raise more than a million dollars from the retail public per year. What did it mean? It meant that any company with more traction, with like $10 million in revenue, they have to do a lot just to raise a million. So that's why in the early phase, the first four years of retail crowdfunding, you only primarily saw very early stage companies using the legal framework. When that cap was increased to 5 million, I think it was on March 15th, that enabled companies like Gumroad to look at it and say, hey, 5 million is a very meaningful amount. And I think for their Series C, uh, they were looking to raise 6 million and 5 million of that came from their community. I think the reservation amount was something like 15 or 20 million. So very sought after. And this is a perfect example of how of the potential and the future of retail capital. Any company or any founder with a community, with a following, obviously aligning ownership and skin in the game is good for the business and it's good for fairness. And Gumroad is just a testament to that. The community, their, their own customers, Sahil's and Gumroad's customers, Sahil's the founder, and he's also an influencer on Clubhouse. And so people really believe and just wanna be a part of it $100 here, $200 there, you know, you have some tens of millions in reservation and close out five millions in a day. For any founder out there to raise five millions or even one millions, I mean, they know how hard, how difficult that process can be. And it shows how effective retail investing can be for the right. So as you mentioned, they were able to raise five million in a day, normally having to go to number of VCs, taking calls, doing pitch decks. And then I looked on the platform, you have now also gotten VCs themselves on the platform. One is Backstage Capital, a VC run by Arlen Hamilton that backs underrepresented founders. Just an amazing mission. How did Arlen think about listing on this? And do you see this trend starting to continue for venture capitalists? Backstage and Arlen Hamilton's campaign showcases the other potential of retail, which is you don't have to be a consumer focused, a B2C company to do this. There isn't a more elite business model than running a venture firm, right? And so in this case, Backstage has such an incredible mission and Arlen is a powerful, powerful human being that uh, who's well-loved by hundreds of thousands of people. And what she stands for, it just resonates with people. And so when she came to us and looked at raising for her fund, we let her know that the law doesn't allow us to deploy retail capital into an investment fund. But for the manager... The firm itself, that is a normal business. And through some strategy sessions with her, Arlen was convinced. Uh, and I'm so glad to, uh, to, that she had that courage and that voice to do something that's entirely new. That, hey, I think my community would back the manager, the operation, the investment advisor entity, and enable and give her and her team the resources needed to build even a larger community. Uh, so the investors in Backstage share in the carry interest that the advisor entity would gain from the fund. So it's not a direct investment in the fund, but it aligns with the fund's success. And 
the convoluted flow of capital may not be so readily understandable, I would say, by a good percent of her investor base. But this is an example whereby people believe in the founder, in the mission, in the company, and invest a small amount that they can lose. Again, $100, $50, $200 to learn about VC, learn about investing, learn about crowdfunding, and they probably will do well down the road. But more importantly, we hope that they then spend more time in the space and develop an expertise and that private investing becomes over time more of, if not a profession, a very serious committed undertaking for some of the many that now are taking that first step. Yeah. And so there will be hopefully so many taking these first steps. Do you have any predictions for what the next five years might hold for private fundraising, VC and investing? Kind of how are you thinking about the landscape over the next few years? If I may speculate, um, I think the notion of ownership by customers and by fans will be such a assumption, an expectation that when, whether you're a musician or you're a tech founder, if you're running any sort of company with a community or a customer base, that becomes like top of mind rather than, oh, this new edgy thing. And I think fans in a musician probably will want to have ownership in the next album uh, that gets dropped. So that notion of retail capital permeating all assets and all verticals of businesses, I think you're going to see in just a couple of years. But when it comes to VC and tech companies, my guess is that the Sequoia, the entries and Horowitz of the world will always be there. The values uh, that they provide are hard to replicate. The expertise, the network, the guidance, board position and all of that. But I think that retail capital, particularly for B2C or consumer-focused businesses, retail capital will replace or very competitively compete against venture capital coming from tier three, tier four, tier five VCs. And Ryan, you're going to have a scenario whereby influencers like Kim Kardashian or Chameleonaire or, you know, Serena Williams leveraging their vast following and become a new version of venture capitalist. So to give you an example, say the founder of Gumroad, the next company that he sees on Republic and that he likes, if in a clubhouse room and he talks about it, he can drive substantial capital, probably larger than a typical check size of a pre-seed VC fund. So you're going to see a whole new generation of emerging individual influencers who are now acting and replacing VC's capital. Yeah, I, I think every raise that I look at now, you know, maybe it's someone like Kevin Durant is in on the deal. Ashton Kutcher has obviously done this for many, many years. There's a lot of NFL players that have gotten involved. J.J. Watt is an investor in public, I'm pretty sure. Tony Hawk. And I, you know, we will have someone on the podcast in a couple of weeks named Kai Cunningham. He runs this VC called Limited Ventures that invests on behalf of a basket of like kind of mid-tier NFL NBA players who maybe don't have the Kevin Durant type of brand and check size that can hold their own weight, but as a collective can just be such a powerful group of LPs. And 
there's no reason why this trend will not come true, I, I feel, in the coming years. And as companies like Gumroad keep empowering creators to build their brands and monetize, it is the future. I do look forward to, to the first real like TikTok Gen Z type of fund, which I'm sure is in the works. I just have not heard about it yet. I think you will see it within the next 12 months. The Kevin Durant and Ashton Kutcher's of the world, up until now, they've been investing directly. But imagine when they invest and they tell all of their fans about it, and 1% of millions of people investing $100 in the same company that they talk about. So not only that they can write a half a million dollar check, they can bring with them, not out of their own pocket, millions and millions of dollars into a company in a way that, you know, it's good for them because they're driving that capital, but it also adds value in the relationship between an influencer and the fans. You're no longer just selling merch. You're empowering your fans to, you know, perhaps participate in things you care about. So I think it's going to be increasingly a powerful, powerful trend. And I think GameStop and Reddit, that saga a couple of months ago, the good and the bad of GameStop doesn't need me to speculate about it, but what it shows is the power of the retail revolution, uh, that how it can even obviously drive and influence the public markets as well. Yeah, I completely agree. It's going to be really exciting to see. And people younger and younger are finally going to be able to monetize their likeness and invest, like you said, alongside their favorite creators. So Kendrick, in closing, you've reached the final part of the episode, which is the rapid fire question round. We've got about 10 or so questions for you. Are you ready? Yes, sir. All right. First one. So you worked with Naval, an absolute legend in the tech space. What's maybe one thing about him that might surprise a lot of folks out here? Naval is an introvert wrapped around by an extrovert. <laughs> <laughs> Can I answer that question again? Uh, what is surprising about Naval? You know, it's obviously not surprising that he's so incredibly thoughtful and a philosopher in tech and beyond. But he also is also one of the most like caring and outgoing person. So the combination of the two, you rarely see a philosopher who also has a very you know, robust social network and is very generative in his impact in the physical world. So that's very rare. Great. Now, how about next one? Who is your fintech hero? <sighs> Who's my fintech hero? I would still say Naval, only because without him, I wouldn't even be in fintech at all. And so obviously, the man who opened the door for me got to be my hero. Great. Okay. Now, throwing it back, what was your first ever job? A used car salesman in high school, a summer job, and I did sell a old Toyota Corolla for a thousand dollars more than what it was worth. And I got, I think, a cut of like 250 bucks back then, which, you know, in the late 90s was a lot of money. That's amazing. I, I, so you sold one car in, in a summer? That's pretty impressive. Just one car over the entire summer got paid under below minimum wage. Uh, I don't even think minimum wage existed then. And I earned $250 in commission uh, from, from one car. <laughs> That's great. A natural born salesman. All right. Now, what advice do you have if you could briefly talk to your 18-year-old self again? 
just get in early and learn by getting started. Don't wait until, you know, I'm a lawyer or start making six-figure salary to invest, whether in the public markets and certainly private markets. So just whatever you find, whatever you're passionate about, just do it and do it in an amount and in with a degree that you can afford to tolerate if things go wrong, uh, but definitely get in one way or another, whatever you believe in. And I didn't do that. Great. So now I'll be moving to the Bay Area to SF after graduation. I love Vietnamese food. What is the best Vietnamese food in the Bay Area and SF? There's a a restaurant called Tan Marin in Palo Alto that's excellent. And there's a place called Slanted Door on the Embarcadero. Both very good places, better than anything that I found in New York. Perfect. Good to hear. I look forward to trying both. Now, how about best and worst part of growing up with four other siblings? Well, uh, the worst part is that you have, or that I had six parents, essentially, uh, telling me what to do, giving me their you know, advice, uh, even when they were not solicited. And the best part about it is, you know, having six parents, I think having that nurturing environment ended up serving as a foundation for everything else that I've done. And looking back, I only appreciate it uh, the way that I do now. Great. Now, what is the toughest part of being a founder? Unquestionably is the level of commitment and how it overtakes all aspects of your life. My recommendation for anyone looking to go down this path, uh, which is founding your own company, is to avoid any distractions, major distractions in life, and don't plan to get into it anytime soon. If you're in a very stable, happy relationship, stay in that relationship for the duration of the company until you raise a series A or series B. And that if you're not in a relationship, probably being a founder is not a good time to initiate uh, that that process. Uh, And that also applies to health, to whatever other issues you have in your life. You're not going to have any time really to focus on on addressing any big problems outside of the main objective of what you're pursuing for a good number of years, which is your own company. That's great advice. And then last question, moving the clock forward to 2030, what does success look like for you in that year where you can look back on the last decade and feel good about what you've done? This question is something that I've been thinking about over the years, and I think my answer now is very different than what it was once. Uh, The answer now is that I measure success by only two things, the profoundness of one's experience at that moment in time, and whether the activities that I'm doing then are the most impactful that I can do. And if that's the case, if I can always maintain and can always answer both questions that, yes, this is the most profound thing I can imagine myself doing at that moment, and that that's the most impactful uh, set of activities that I undertake that very day, then that is success. I imagine, though, that both of those questions or answering those questions will continue to wrap around Republic at whatever stages it may be at that time. But uh, that's my definition of success. Ken, that was an amazing answer. And I think a perfect place to wrap up today's episode. I want to thank you so much for coming on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast, sharing your mission, sharing your story, and of course, the amazing success of Republic. I will link Republic in the bio and the episode description of the episode. I'm very excited for all of our listeners to learn more. 
Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. It was such a fun conversation. And uh, whenever you uh, want me to uh, jump back on and share, you know, more stories about other founders on Republic, just let me know. It's been truly a, a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more FinTech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton FinTech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan Zauk.